0: So um, that was kind of the journey from chemicals and the environment environmentalism. I then took the activism side, and, and the thing that caused me to jump really away from um, an academic career is recognizing that you can spend the rest of your life putting high-quality papers on the shelves that a relatively small number of people read, um, and... I had a profound belief that most of the problems that we have in this world can be solved not with a new technology or a new piece of research, but a better application of existing knowledge. And so I basically, um, after agreeing twice to take on the permanent position at Imperial and then um, changing my mind three times. I, just, I decided to set up an um, Alliance for Natural Health 18 years ago as, as a vehicle for my life's work and, and that's really what it's become.
1: Hello and welcome to the Natural Healthcare Network Podcast. My name is Deb McLeod and I really appreciate your sitting in and listening in. Today, I have the pleasure of two people joining me. One is Rob Verkirk. He is the founder, executive, and scientific director of the Alliance for Natural Health. And Claire Sinton, specialist sports medicine physio and qualified nutritional therapist, is joining me today as a co-host. So we're both very excited to have Rob joining us to tell us his personal story and talk about what it is that drove him to. Really start the alliance for natural health and how things have progressed over a period of time it is so exciting to have him on the show it's something both claire and i have been looking forward to for a long time thank you so much rob and claire for joining me today it is great to have you on my show thank you
0: <laughs> thank you so much indeed. fabulous to be on the show
1: uh, you're so you're so kind. Both of you are so kind. So Rob, you are here today. Actually, we want to we're here to talk about you. You are um, you have a lot of things that are really interesting. You've you've founded a, an organization called the Alliance for Natural Health, which I'm a big fan of. But I think it would be really interesting to hear a bit more about your story and the why. And Claire and I have talked about you behind your back in the nicest possible (laughs) way. (laughs) Um, Because your, your key Um, missions within the Alliance for Natural Health are campaigning you're an activist you're doing research and education but we're really interested in understanding why you know what's behind that and I'm going to let Claire jump in and and ask you a lot of the the things about research because that's where she not not only where she thrives but what she really loves so are you happy for us to do that today?
0: Absolutely it's a pleasure. Oh, um, great. I'm not so great about um, talking about myself. I'd rather often <laughs> think about issues. But I do, I do get it that it's, you know, all of us are, are driven people. And it's um, it's it's worth looking at those drivers sometimes. Maybe because it can inspire others to, you know, find their own drivers. Um, yeah. We need, we need change big time. At this, There's never been a time in my life where I think we are at a, a cusp, a precipice of something um, you know, it could go either way, and yes. the more of us who who have a vision of a future that's that's a good one for for people for planet, um, the more likely. If, if everyone is pulling in different directions, I'm just writing a piece actually for A and H on that very subject about the fact that everyone's pulling in different directions, and there's a real risk that we will go nowhere. Mm. So okay. yeah, we need to find our drivers.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I know Claire does as well. It's a, a big mission to try and find a way. My, my vision is to how can we get the complementary health care people and conventional medicine and the public combined? You know, how can we support each other and, and provide that sense of people learning to own their own health? And I'm sure Claire has her two-pinnets to add in on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, making wellness and health more mainstream, Rather than yep. so looking at pre, looking at it preventatively rather than in a oh my gosh, firefighting, let's let's try and kind of plug the hole. Um, I feel really passionately about that. And the more I, I learn about you, Rob, the more I <laughs> think that might <laughs> be the case. <laughs>
0: uh, absolutely. I mean I, I think one of the solutions is to help um, what has sometimes been described as the other side, um, mainstream medicine to recognize that the so-called integrative medicine, complementary, alternative medicine community is not trying to do the same thing. It it has a, a completely different position in, in society. Um, if you look at the the data on the number of visits, um, it is a surprise. We work pretty closely with, with Balins, which is the largest insurer in the, in the CAM world, and, and the data show very, very clearly the number of appointments to CAM practitioners on a daily basis exceeds the number of visits to a GP. So, you know, one of them is working more in proactive healthcare, you know, within the community. The other one is working more in the reactive healthcare space. And there is a perfect opportunity for dare I say it, for for them to be complementary to one another. So there isn't a fight. There is no fight that needs to go on. It's just uh, about awareness and understanding. Um, And to a degree, the bigger the challenges are, the greater the opportunity for understanding. But we're not there yet. Um, COVID offers a fantastic opportunity because it is so challenging in so many ways but i think i think there is some some definite rays of sunlight that are coming through the clouds
1: totally agreed so if we kind of stop there for right now can we can we force you a little bit twist your arm a bit to tell us a little bit about why what got you into this because your background is is inter- i mean it's very interesting but what was it that drove you to do this
0: well Uh, I mean, I guess if you look, um, you try and look at life events, I immediately, I'm thinking in my own mind, two or three key events that can take you to this, the place where I have been for the last, you know, the journey I've been in the last 20 years when I decided to walk away from my postdoc career at Imperial College, um, because I was offered a permanent position that that's what did it it would have then you're thinking oh my god (laughs) i'm going to be stuck there for the rest of my life um and and then if your world seems to get smaller but but um i can remember uh, and here's one for claire my 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 dad was a pretty damn good tennis player he was he was he was kenyan champion can you believe it in the 1950s Um, and um and then um we moved to west africa because his his um, sinful line of work was tobacco. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, um, so I was born in Kenya and then raised in, in, in West Africa. And um, so I used to, on, on a weekend, you know, be his ball boy. And I remember coming back when he, we were coming back from a tennis match, um, r- driving along um, back to our house, close to an area where, guerrilla wars were going on i mean we'd have bullets flying over our heads and all that kind of stuff and we it was on a sort of um bit of a mountain road um and there were a couple of kids sitting at the corner of the um of of the turn in the road with a bunch of mangoes wild mangoes that they'd collected and um and as we came past um I will never forget the look of this kid's eyes. He was looking at me and not my father. He was about about my age, maybe a couple of years older. Um, I would have been about um I would have been about five at the time and um and this this mango hit the front windscreen and just exploded and um and I, I was I was I was pretty shocked. My my father, who'd lived through the wow the the Mao Mao in in Kenya, was you know he had to always have a gun on him and never used it. Quite a pacifist, um, but um, you know it wasn't a shock to him at all. But I turned around to him and said, you know, why why did he do that? Because the the school I was at, I was you know most of my friends were were local black kids, but not from the same kind of background. And and of course, because we were driving in a pretty modern car, um, I was white. Um, he he said, um, you know, that kid probably resented the fact that you were sitting in a in a car in a Fiat Italian car, um, and um, and that kind of created a switch in me around the air of inequality. So. Um, Uh, You know, we then jump forward till the age when I was around um, 17, because my dad was in business, I'd signed up, you know, he was living in by that stage in Indonesia, again, places where they grow lots of tobacco. Um, And as a Dutch national, you will understand I don't speak with a Dutch accent because I was turfed off to British boarding schools, which is why I speak the way that I do um and um so one holiday back in holland with my grandmother his my father's mother she questioned why i was signed up at the age of 17 to go to the london school of economics and um and you know i i was going to do that because i felt i needed to get work you know when your parents live a long way away, you really are thinking about your future what you're going to be doing when you're 18 21 can I get work and you know my dad had been in business so um but she said you know why and her her politics were a little left of center and um (laughs) she said you know do you do you like economics because you really like understanding the you know allocation of resources and countries and businesses or is it more about a means to an end I said well definitely it's about a means to an end and she said why don't you just do what you really love to do? And (laughs) so she she sort of took the pressure off and said, come on, what would you do if there was no jobs to think about? And I said, well, you know, it's about the birds and the bees for me. It's about about nature. It's about how nature works at all its levels. She said, why don't you do that? And my first thought was, my dad will be angry. (laughs) (laughs) What a
2: great woman. She, really? really. Yeah.
0: So um, (laughs) I withdrew my five applications to British universities, including the LSE, um, and signed up for a single course, the only one I could find. It was by this stage I just wanted the course I could find. It wasn't even at a university. It was at a polytechnic. (laughs) <laughs> now the Polytechnic of central London now University of westminster and um i I did a degree there in um in ecology um and absolutely loved it in fact, I loved it so much I was asked to go back to teach immediately afterwards um then I was offered a master's at Imperial College and I decided to take um 6 months because the teaching was for 6 months and then I would go to Australia for 6 months before starting the masters at imperial and I did start the masters at imperial but 10 years later and oh,
1: wow. <laughs>
0: so I I went to Australia and um and basically um became a a very much an activist in the environmental movement Um, working closely guided really by Aboriginal people Um, and I I, I got married to a Torres Strait Island Aboriginal Um, I had an incredible insight into Aboriginal people and the relationship between Indigenous people and the planet and earth. There was a period of a couple of years where I had no contact with my family, I had very little contact with non-Aboriginal people. I'd almost gave myself over to, um, and um, and then it was really when some of the elders said, you know, you have to solve the white fella's problems. That was another moment when I, and, um, and basically, cut a long story short, I set up I carried on working with with the environmental movement through the Total Environment Center, based in Sydney. We were, you know, stopping rainforests going down. We were, you know, stopping chemicals going into the environment. Um, we banned a whole bunch of pesticides. We identified um, the full contamination of the dairy um, system through the use of organochlorine. So. Um, I was doing all this stuff in my 20s. Um, you know, we had the work that we did there also kind of turned, it was really the last final nail in the coffin for Velsicol, the world's last remaining manufacturer of um, organochlorine um, because termites were a big problem. Um, and um, cut a long story short, I then got involved in in finding ways of dealing with um, pest problems that without using chemicals and um, set up a business um, that's still going now with friends of mine running it in Australia that was tuned into how you go about managing um, termites without using chemicals. and um, So yeah.
2: it's where the, the kind of neem extract comes yes, in.
0: you've um, got it. Yeah. yeah,
2: your research, your early, early kind of research.
0: So we took neem. We took neem amongst other compounds that we're using around termites. And we, we, I then when I, I did my my masters at Imperial, got a distinction there. Then went straight into a PhD that I, um, completed in two years, because I wow. had a, I had my, um, I, I was going through a separation from my. Um, second wife at that point um, and I buried myself in my work and then went from there into a seven-year postdoctoral productive phase of yeah. research working around the world in in the field of um, sustainable agriculture and, you know, again, finding particularly ways of managing um, insects and other pests without using chemicals. Um, and, and yes, the, I had very strong relationships with Cuba. We did a lot of work in, um, in Southeast Asia, um, uh, East Africa, Southern Africa, um, Central Asia. We're working on the cotton systems there. And again, everything was pointing to um, not so much the problem with the science. Science is a fantastic way of looking at the world if you're rigorous about it and you are small s sceptical about it and you really do use the null hypothesis to test your hypotheses um i'm 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 forever dismayed at how some of the basic principles of science get sidelined in medicine yeah you know usually for reasons of ethics or you know history or politics but um i'm still a passionate believer that the the method is is an appropriate method, and it is nothing more than a method. Don't imagine that it's a religion. That's one of the problems we got today. Science yeah. has become a religion. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so so um, that was kind of the journey from chemicals and the environment environmentalism. I then took the activism side, and and the thing that caused me to jump really away from. Um, an academic career, is recognising that you can spend the rest of your life putting high-quality papers on the shelves that a relatively small number of people read. Um, And I had a profound belief that most of the problems that we have in this world can be solved not with a new technology or a new piece of research, but a better application of existing knowledge. And so, I basically, um, after agreeing twice to take on the permanent position at Imperial, and then um, changing my mind three times, <laughs> I, des- I decided to set up um, Alliance for Natural Health eighteen years ago as as a vehicle for my life's work, and and that's really what it's become.
2: I I really like the way that you're very solution driven. So so you're. You ask the question or create the argument in some cases and then you go and bam, here's the research. And, mm. and so it's it's very much like, yep, yeah, this supports my argument, but let's let's go from there and and move on. Um, and you. I really like that approach.
0: No, thank you. It's, <laughs> you know, it, the, 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 the difficulty is that a lot of the areas that we work in from a scientific point are extremely uncertain. Yeah. So you know, I, I feel again pretty passionately that we must be tolerant of opposing views, mm. and we must mm. be tolerant of of the fact that if you've had a different life experience, you've read different papers, you you know, so many of the views that are view- that are considered to be scientific are still the result of a value judgment a belief system in which you know a certain set of data resonate more than another set of data yeah um, the the, real, the reality is that it's a very very um, uncertain field my, my sadness in terms of how you validate this uncertain data is around the fact that we have in medicine in particular lost the ability to observe. So, mm. you know, I'll give you an example. If, you, if you're if you an astronomer, mm. you might have a theory about how the constellations work. You would then get your telescope out, and you'd study the movements of the constellations relative to each other to come up with a view to validate or otherwise. And, you know, in medicine, what we see is consistently something very different. So um, I, I, I worked for many years very close to a, a charity called Yes to Life, the only integrative medicine charity in the UK. And, you know, I've get, often given talks to to patients who, who attend the, the meetings. And um, the number of times at the end of a meeting, first of all, you know, you... I have a queue of people wanting to talk to you, and the first question I ask, you know, what brought you here? And very often, you'll find it's people with stage four cancer yeah. who look who look incredibly healthy, which is unusual mm-hmm. because generally they're not undergoing, you know, chemotherapy or radiotherapy. Um, the, the second thing they'll often say is when they have met with their oncologist. And the oncologist has determined that they have managed through often dietary lifestyle modifications, botanicals, and other you know natural compounds, um, different ways of thinking and and managing their headspace have put their cancer into remission. The standard response has been to walk away from it.
1: Yep. Yeah. Whereas
0: a an open-minded scientist. As an oncologist would say, please sit down and tell me exactly what you've done.
1: Yes. Yeah, right? And that that <laughs> yeah.
0: hardly ever happens. Yes. Hardly ever happens. And that's why, disappointing.
1: Why do you think that is? I mean, I know I've got in my mind why I think that is, but why do you think that is? You can both of you can answer that. Both of my scientist fellows here. I
0: well, mean, Claire, Claire, you jump in.
1: <laughs> I I think it's um as you
2: said, Rob, I think if you've if you've got a a way of thinking, you look for evidence to support your way of thinking. So, um, so you add up the one side of the argument, and you don't consider the other side because you're constantly looking to confirm your your beliefs that you already have. Um, and I think as you um, progress through. Um, reading research and trying to um, critically analyse it and, and weigh up um, and read between the lines, then you can start to synthesise it and go, hang on a second, there's there's one paper saying one thing and one paper saying the complete opposite. Where does the, the truth lie? Or, or um, hmm, that's to say there's one truth, um, but yeah. then... But there's um, your truth, and you look to com- you look to affirm it. Um, yes,
0: uh, look, I, I'd agree, and and, and uh, on the on the subject of truth, also, I, I believe, you know, in in around most of these areas, there is no ultimate truth. There is just, yeah. as you say, a, a personal truth. Um, okay. I, another way of looking at what you've said is, um, I've used this uh, this idea in various lectures that if you imagine that your knowledge base and your belief systems are separate entities, what we're actually looking for is a, this is what the human mind wants to do, wants to try and find a consistent logic structure between the knowledge base, whatever that knowledge base is, and that belief system. And along the way, it's looking at data, it's looking at the plausibility of that data, and... Along the way, if there are things that get in the way of this consistent logic structure, much easier to discard it. And if that, um, if those views, come from a sector that you feel comfortable, has been generally marginalised, it's even easier to just toss it away. Yeah. And and the the fascinating thing is is that despite the fact that we are ecological entities functioning in A dynamic environment. In other words, nature is pretty important. It is the most important reason that we're here. It's, um, you know, dare I say it, it's the most important reason that um, we, 96% plus of people who are exposed to COVID don't die because of our immune systems. Um, You know, it's even the reason why if a vaccine is going to work in COVID, it's because of the natural inborn immune system together with the way in which it dances with the external elements of um, our environment, particularly the food and the nutrients we eat. That's what really makes the vaccine work if it is going to work. So nature is really important, but it's it's been relegated to a subordinate position by a mindset of people who believe that human-created technology is superior to something from nature. And so when we talk about belief system, my belief system is different. My belief system says that nature is our ultimate teacher. And, um, you know, there's so much we have, we, we, we're just skimming the surface of what nature has to offer, and how, how life works, how you can take essentially how you can take stardust and and turn it into living organisms that interact in incredibly complex ways and you know we might have learned something about the um the 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 biochemistry of those systems or the genetic structure or drivers and expression of those systems but we don't really understand the energy or the bioenergy of those systems um because that's yet to come that's something that our you know great 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 grandchildren may understand better than we do yeah. it's-
1: such a it's just you can't touch it right now I mean it is mm. the most exciting and fantastic part uh, or element of who and what we are that is just such a big question and I, I guess that just puts everyone out of balance because they can't define it they can't those that have to have something defined can't define that bit so it kind of throws them a wobbly or a wobbler I guess is that-
0: you know and the difficulty is if you're going to be a scientist who believes you are all-knowing in my mind, you are a flat earther. You know, you you you, you <laughs> have to understand that we can be nowhere near the limit, the finite knowledge base. Yeah, you know, we're 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 we're, we're babes in the wood, and yeah. we've got an enormous amount to learn. So we have to maintain this openness of mind if we're truly to understand the sheer complexity, not only of, of life on this planet, but how on earth life got here and you know what the world and the universe is and do we agree or disagree with the concept of you know parallel universes and what about quantum what about the linearity of time and you know is everything that we experience on this planet to a degree an illusion that is seen just through our own limited sense of awareness
1: that's, that's one of my favourite angles to go down. But Claire, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead.
2: I, I think there's, um, bringing it back to what we were asking before, um, there's a lot of pressure on um, medics to know everything, to have all the answers and to deliver them to the patient and to put things in nice little boxes with diagnoses written on them and, and anything that falls outside of that, um, well, you must be wrong, Um, you know, then those symptoms don't fit into this box. So you've got some of them wrong. And actually, you know, everyone has a completely different experience of, you know, of anything. Um, So uh, I think perhaps as a society kind of removing some of that pressure and um, saying, you know what, it's actually okay to not know. And the more you learn, the more you realise you know, nothing.
0: It's kind of Isn't it fascinating that, that um, if you look at what has happened in medicine and you compare it, say, with some of the most complex natural systems we know about, rainforests and coral reefs are probably the most complex ecosystems we know about. Yeah. Um, what we do in medicine, what most of medicine deals with, is when the wheels fall off the car. You know, we, we wait until people start getting diseased, then we, then we name it, then we try and tame it. Yeah. Um, and imagine if you went in to try and understand how a rainforest works, and the only yeah. thing you were interested in is the, you know, beautiful small mammals and birds that dropped to the forest floors when they were sick or dying. Yeah. And that was how you tried to understand the working of that ecosystem. And yeah. so, what what we're trying to do in A A&H is to turn the whole thing in the head and say, guys, let's for a minute just say let allopathic medicine deal with the you know reactive side of the healthcare when when the car's broken down on the side of the motorway. Let's look at the the system itself from from preconception you know, through early life and and what happens, you know, so that we can actually, we're starting to do that in agriculture. We're starting to realise regenerative agriculture is where it's all at. It's, it's, you know, I was for many years a technical advisor to the Soil Association. I love their work, the, the very fact that it's started, you know, in the 1940s to be built around soil because that's the foundation on which plants need to grow through that complex interaction, not only with the um, abiotic elements of a soil, but also all the living elements. And, and now we see there's a very strong relationship between what happens in the soil and around the rhizosphere, around the root hairs of a plant, and um, and the human gut microbiome. You know, these are all sort of models. That share so much in common. So we 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 need to move to a system where we understand how the system works and what we need to do to to keep it healthy. So you know, most people's minds, healthcare is actually disease care. It's not healthcare at all, and yeah. and we need to change that. And we need to change that fast.
2: Um, as nutritional therapists, we we kind of often go down the route of saying well that you know the the soil doesn't contain the minerals that it used to when there was appropriate crop rotation when the hedgerows were were in place when trees were still there instead of brick houses and and there was a really healthy kind of self-maintenance of this environment without disruption um and i mean where do you sit say for example magnesium in soil
0: yeah well i Claire, you and I would have seen um, much the same da- data. You know, David Thomas's uh, well-known study looking at uh, McCants and Whitteson over a 50-year period has shown, you know, 10 to 40, 50% of a couple of minerals up to 70% decline in 50 years. Um, yes, and that's the reason I mentioned regenerative agriculture because you need nutrient cycling. Yeah. Um, I, this idea of, um, you know, we... we Produced a very comprehensive um, challenge to the Eat Lancer report that's now viewed as the template for um, trying to bring health um, sustainability and planetary sustainability together through the planetary health diet. But it's defective in some really important ecological principles, um, one of the most fundamental being nutrient cycling. So if you if you try and take um, one major trophic level out of the system um livestock and you don't allow those animals to poop back into the ground Yeah, um, you know any farmer will tell you if you really want to get a live active soul you need poop you know and um so uh and secondly if you're going to look at marginal lands if you're going to look at climate change and and you know relatively close to home let's look at the Scottish Highlands or the Welsh hills with with beef and 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 sheep respectively um, those systems are already carbon neutral F- follow what the what the NFU the National farmers Union is saying about this they're, they're measuring all of this saying guys don't blame beef farming for when you take your data from you know the very intensive livestock production systems in in texas for example where you're getting maize and soya grown in in um, south americas then shipped over and you're feeding um these animals uh foods that they're not adapted to so they produce vast amounts of methane out of both their orifices um and and then you don't have a pasture system that is rotated that allows you to turn your land into a carbon sink. So you'll find that in order to make the data work and to denigrate livestock farming, you'll see that they nearly always talk about emissions. They don't look at the net combination of sequestration and emissions, the the way in which the land can act as a carbon sink, and also you look at emissions from a livestock system that isn't high-intensity but is on marginal lands where you couldn't have either arable or horticulture crops growing. So, you know, let's get real about real life and not just rely on desk-based research. The big failing of Eat said it was desk-based. These guys didn't spend time going out in farms, um, just as the doctors that we were talking about before perhaps haven't seen what's happening out in the community when human beings are given the resources that they really need to allow the systems that are desperate to find balance again to try and find homeostasis the body is where it can't find homeostasis it's often just got something missing and you know your job as as therapists is to understand that system so you can determine for that individual what elements are missing and um so yeah, we, we, we've got a long way to go.
1: What are some things that that we can hit on very briefly? Um, because you know, we could talk with you, I think, forever and ever. Um, your your dynamic and in, in what you're trying to achieve and what you're wanting to achieve, and and I am really keen that we support your cause. What what are some things that we should address? What um, that we, we haven't in this short amount of time, Claire, what would you like to bother Rob about or Rob, what would you like? (laughs) I know she sent me this last night.
2: (laughs) I said, we have an hour. (laughs) I, I mean, I think I know, I think I know the answers that you might offer to, to some of these, but, um, I just wanted to hear your stance on, um, ecocide as a law to bring in an ecocide law
0: yeah so so this is a law in which you would um you would uh, consider it to be a criminal offense to uh, yeah. damage the environment. Um, yeah, uh, you know one of the interesting things is when you believe in in free speech and fundamental rights, you you would have to make a value judgment. Over how you define eco side, yeah. and um, my sense is it's it's remarkably difficult to determine. You know, you could argue that um, if you decide to go to the shops in a you know a fairly gas-guzzling internal combustion engine rather than take your bicycle, you're contributing to ecocide. side. Um, if you go shopping and you um, select, uh, you know fruits and vegetables that come from the other side of the planet or you've you know bought your your lamb in from new zealand rather than taking something from a sustainable farm in in wales that is also ecocide um so it becomes very simple when you when you directly um you know look at people who are putting change through amazonian rainforests but i the more you look into the the underlying reasons why that happens the more you realize that it actually is to do with a massive dysfunction in the way that we run society so yeah. the, the biggest single progress that we've seen in terms of you know very negative actions on the environment like deforestation have not been criminalizing those behaviors they've been supporting the people that are engaged in those behaviors to change their business models their lifestyles their livelihoods um because frankly we're not kind of most of us the vast majority of us are not built to go out deliberately and sabotage the environment on which we're reliant yeah. so in a nutshell i'm i'm not a i'm not a great believer in the idea of bringing down a law because it's there's so much uncertainty in deciding what is ecocide and what isn't and where you see the, the the biggest single offenses, I think there's ways of of trying to change behaviors um, and business models that drive environmental destruction in different ways um, yeah. so,
2: so actually root cause rather than at the end of it kind of having a backlash so instead all of always, always it,
0: root cause I, I'm look I'm not a I'm not a great believer in um, in legislating. Um, for any of this, I, I believe in the fact that people should develop and grow up with a sense of awareness, as broad awareness as they can, so they can make responsible decisions. Um, and you know, coming back to the COVID crisis, I'm a big supporter of the Swedish model because you know Sweden has taken the line that that you know let's not legislate like crazy. Let's talk very openly and honestly to the people in our country. Let's help them to make decisions that are right decisions. Let's understand that actually the best way of dealing this thing long-term is to allow it to move through the healthy population. It's the only thing we know positively that has worked in terms of our previous exposure to zoonotic viruses. Um, And they've treated their people like grown-ups, you know. The danger is if you start legislating for everything, you you actually remove a sense of individual responsibility. Um, yeah. Yes. Which is why we put education right at the top and the biggest single job I think we we do at ANH is try to educate people.
2: Yes. So empowering people to to make good decisions, um, rather than penalising them when they don't.
0: Correct. Mm.
2: It, which
1: is a big mission. Yeah.
2: I mean, I. I've I've seen your recent tweet about um, face masks, and um, <laughs> had to get this one in there. Um, and I was wondering, um, considering we know corona boils down to, I'm going to simplify it into a cytokine storm in the worst case scenarios by adding a face mask that's been shown. Um, in in some studies, to reduce oxygen saturation and increase CO2 rebreathe. I, I just wondered if we could see this as kind of a training opportunity for our body to work in a hypercapnic, hypercapnic hypoxic state, so like we would if we were a swimmer, um, so kind of like training athletes to, to survive in a, in a lower oxygen saturation state or whether we want to um, be, be more careful that we're not sending people into respiratory acidosis and therefore increasing their vulnerability to a cytokine storm or, or an inflammatory response. Um, where <laughs> where do you sit on that? Well,
0: you know, it's all very nice to have uh, an experiment. The, the, what concerns me is, A, the impact of reducing blood oxygen saturation for an older person who already may be low, perhaps only a shade over 90%, is potentially quite risky in itself. Um, From a point of view of of, um, transmission, we know that people wear masks touch their faces way more often. Um, There is no requirement to replace it every five minutes or five hours or five days or five weeks. I mean, my goodness! I've seen some people wandering around with some pretty shabby, wet, um, grungy masks that then get put down on a table or a surface that other people can touch, and then they're yeah. touching other things, and they're nowhere. You know, so the the the, the possibility that virus transmission can be increased, um, and and then thirdly. I have a real issue that there are so many other things that we could be doing the single most important is really aggressive treatment that involves natural substances as early as possible you look at the doctors who are doing that and you know what what you know it's all very well go out and clapping the nhs but when we've been sitting at um roughly close to 50% mortality for those who are seriously ill frankly we could Turn that fifty percent um, mortality to half a percent mortality. Um, we could all go back to life as as normal. So the the the, the issue is not infection rates, and I am very dismayed at the way in which the media consistently um, confuses the public by. Trying to suggest that increases in infection. This is the if you've seen the work we've done on the R number as well. We're not a believer in using the R number. We we think it, actually if you see an increase in the R number, we should celebrate it because it's actually a chance <laughs> of increasing yeah. naturally acquired yeah. immunity. So the, the the only thing we we need to be thinking about is is what is happening around mortality. You know when infection leads to serious disease and 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 therefore increases mortality. And we're definitely not doing what we could be doing. And just like the example we talked about at the outset around um, cancer patients, the doctors who are getting pretty much 100% survival from, you know, hospitalized patients are not getting a look in. They're protocols that have... A very strong rational scientific basis are being dismissed and are not being heard by the likes of NICE, the NHS or in the States the NIH and and that I believe is completely in conflict with the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, I also great. think it is potentially um, borderline medical negligence. Yeah. You know, people are dying unnecessarily. And so maths becomes something of a side issue when you, yeah. you know, we could be doing so many other things.
1: It's, yeah. it's sort of a, a patch. Now, I'm conscious of the time. It's, you know, for you because you're, you're going to need to go. I'd love to do this again. But one question I always ask everyone who comes on this show is, um, you know, you're doing all this wonderful stuff. How could we help you other than singing and shouting out about A&H? Because, you know, both of us think you're a great organization. We, we both were talking before and saying we don't think enough people know about you, which is, you know, that's, that's fine. I'm always talking about you on my podcasts at the very end. So, um, so what could we do to help you?
0: You know, I, I think the, the biggest thing is, is to share our material, share our information. Okay. And this is more important than it's ever been because of the fact that we, um, along with others who are essentially challenging the views of the status quo, are also being censored by the status quo. So yeah. we've got to understand that, you know, we, we use um, a kind of theory of change process in everything that we do we we recognize that the status quo in certain areas has got it wrong but it's going to protect itself as strongly as it can to avoid change so change inevitably means you're going to be doing something the status quo is not going to like and um the latest weapon is is a is a concerning weapon because it involves um restricting freedom of expression. And I think when we're dealing with great areas of uncertainty, if we can't freely express ourselves in areas, you know, this is scientific debate has been how we've got this far, you know, since the industrial revolution, particularly. Um, And if we can't have open and honest debates, we can't actually progress things. We, we, We move more and more into a kind of, you know, fascist, mindset and and that is not a good space to be.
2: You can't censor one side of the argument that's just that's not helpful for anybody.
0: No. So so if you're going to criticize something let's see the criticism um on the basis of the scientific merits or otherwise using due scientific process using a balance of evidence approach you know we've all got to make sure that people on our side of the debate are as guilty as people on the other side of the debate in cherry picking science but where we where we don't have the science let's let's look at what kind of evidence we we decide to use and let's understand that actually case reports can be an enormously important way of actually determining what kind of research we might be doing Um, the randomized controlled trial has got huge weaknesses when you come to looking at anything involving nutrition because none of all of us have got a Keep eating, um, and there are so many confounding factors. Um, and then, if you then try and do sort of metabolic studies, you you create an experimental condition that's greatly differs from the huge vagaries of the real world that we exist in. So, case reports often, you know, if they're consistent, you know, any doctor who's saying I have been dealing with with um, um, infected patients, in other words, patients who have confirmed um, SARS-CoV-2 infection and they were seriously ill in terms of symptoms, and I have zero mortality to not say if that, if that number is in excess of 50 or 100, which many of these groups of doctors are, to say those data are not valid because they haven't been conducted with an RCT. Yeah. Is, is is would be my definition of insanity.
2: But, but also, if you if you had the virus, who would you listen to with that rationale? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no. it's a no brainer.
0: That no. that's the very reason that that complementary and alternative medicine survives, regardless what governments or the pharmaceutical industry yeah. say about it, because yeah. there are too many people out there who've had a positive experience, and that positive experience means more to them than whatever they're going to be reading um, on the Sunday Times, so, we will
1: always you know, be the confounder. So sorry,
0: Claire. Exactly.
2: So yeah. if I can kind of um, conclude that, if we could help you, we could write up our case studies.
0: Correct, and you know I think what what we have been working with is is um, trying to find a more systematic approach. So we've developed uh, a, a, a methodology around COVID that mm-hmm. practitioners could use, we'd be very happy to share that with you. So okay. that there is a consistent what what we often find is that practitioners who are very dedicated to do the best for their patients don't necessarily capture baseline data. No. So they they okay. consistently have what we might as a scientist describe as endpoint data. But you go, hold on guys, what what data using exactly the same um measurement metric? Did you capture a baseline? Oh, oh, no, no, the patient came in sick and we didn't capture anything. Well, th- this is when we need to see you know, practitioner participatory research moving up a notch so there's a more consistent approach to how you capture data for case reports. But it is very, very important data.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think NNC, who, who we're a... Uh, um, A member of um, you know, it's our little collective group. Um we're quite good at having a variety of skills within our group and and actually trying to support one another for the ones that perhaps aren't so scientific but brilliant therapists, um, to the ones that are slightly more scientific and want to know the you know, the quantitative um, data and, and actually just trying to encourage each other to bring all that together so that there is something that that can be um, put back out there to say, hey, you know what? Um, this is consistently moving um, in a positive direction. How about we we do, it does give it some credibility and, and um, you know, we really, we all believe in, in what we're doing Um, And there's a reason for that, because our experiences aren't of people getting really ill and worse. They're of people getting better. That's why we're in it.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Well, our our blueprint project has set out a a mechanism that can be used as well as a common language built around ecological principles that looks at human interactions in terms of 12 domains that has three levels of, of assessment from from ones that are zero cost through to more biomedical you know functional medicine testing but yeah. that that provide measures across both systems so that that is the system that we're developing we, we're we, we've just um, set up a charity now um, that is going to become the vehicle through which we conduct um, large-scale trials of the system to to really come up with a health regeneration health creation exactly. system that is not based around disease diagnosis, it's based on parameters of health and function um, that can actually become a common language that regardless of the discipline that you come from, you could everyone could be using the same language. The, the, the siloed approach in which all the different specialisms end up speaking a different language None of which are properly understood by the most important person in the equation, which is the patient or the client, exactly. is a problem. So we need a common language around health. And that's really what our blueprint for health system sustainability is all about.
1: Well, what we'll have to do is we'll, we'll get that information on the show notes. We'll have links for that. And I'll I'll connect Perfect. up with Melissa. So um, there's a lot can... of
0: data. There's a yeah. lot of data on our website. Yeah, We've got a whole campaign yes. area around that. So yeah, fabulous. That would be great. Okay.
1: Okay, that's terrific. Well, again, I'm, I'm conscious of the time. I'm really, really grateful because I know that you're a busy guy. Claire, you're a busy woman as well. So it's been great having you on the show with me and maybe another time you can come on or if you Love want you. to use our platform, just let us know because we'd be delighted to support you in any way we can.
0: Okay, Thank yeah, you okay. so much indeed. It's been such a pleasure, both of you, Deb and Claire. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, folks, that's all for today. I really hope you enjoyed sitting in and listening in to Rob share his story. I'd like to thank Claire Sinton for joining me today. She's always a great co-host and really adds a great deal of value to any show that I ever do so then we will be sure and provide information discussed in the show notes i'll provide links of course to the alliance for natural health who i am a big fan of if you don't know about them please check them out and of course i will provide information on how to get in touch with claire as well Now then, there are a couple of things I'd like to talk with you about. And of course, one of them is going to be about the Bellican. What can I say about the Bellican? Except that it is absolutely fantastic. If you are interested in improving your health or that of your client's well-being in a low impact and super effective way, get in touch with me. I am an affiliate of theirs and a huge fan. So I will have the link in the show notes so you can access any information you'd like to about them or just get in touch with me. My email will be provided in the show notes. There are a couple of other things I'd like to ask you as always. I'd like to ask you if you haven't done so already to subscribe to my podcasts. And I'd also like to ask you to spread the word. Share this with other people you think this might be of value to because these podcasts are here to support collaborate, communicate, educate, and inspire one another. And that collaboration of one another within the healthcare industry is so important right now. We really want to show people how to take charge of their own health, as Rob and Claire discussed in our recording. Another thing I'd like to talk with you about is the event in September on the multifaceted effect of gut health. It is going online, so details will be forthcoming. I promise that I will provide information on this as soon as I can. In the meantime, I'd like to thank you again for listening in. And until next time, I'd like to wish you and yours the very best of health. Bye for now. Bye.